Hi, welcome to the Kim Turner Podcast. We're in episode number two. And today, what we're going to discuss is a pain point that's in most 911 centers across the globe, 911 retention and recruitment. Uh, many people may not know, it's actually an international problem. And we're going to watch a very short video from our neighbors up north in Ontario province of Canada. Hello? Hello? My grandpa's not breathing. Help! Hello? Hello, anybody? Hello? <laughs> Lower wages, higher stress, and higher workloads are causing recruitment and retention problems for ACOs. Fewer staff with less training and no surge capacity make it worse. ACOs are in crisis. Low staff levels are at the heart of the crisis. Answer the call, improve staffing levels, and deal with the workload issues today. So we'll do a recruitment plug uh, at the same time for our friends in, in Ontario. What I'd like to do is just have a moment to have a discussion. And often when I speak to 911 leaders, managers, floor staff, the very first question that comes up is, where do we start? We know we're short, but we don't know where to begin. I want to give you a very basic blueprint regarding, regarding how uh, to become successful in recruiting. The first thing we have to ask ourselves is, how many vacancies do we really have? Sometimes it's just a thought or a feeling or, you know, hey, I think we have two. I think we have 20 vacancies. How many do we really have? That needs to be followed with, is that number accurate? When is the last time you did a staffing study? Have your numbers increased or decreased? I'm going to give an example of another Ontario, Ontario, California. The city has pretty much doubled in size and population within the last five years. Their neighbors just to the west, Chino, California, their numbers, their population numbers have doubled, if not tripled. So if the last time we did a staffing study was 5, 10, 15 years ago, that may not be an accurate number to address the vacancies um, and the number you really need. That might sound discouraging. It may sound like if I can't fill the vacancies I have now, will it make my situation worse if I need more? The answer is it doesn't make your situation worse. You're just now have a really true understanding of what the need is. So when we ask for positions or we ask for salaries, which we'll adjust here in a moment, you're operating from a place of factually, factual true information, right? So the decision makers they understand the problem is bad. They just need to understand the magnitude of the problem and how to best address it. Uh, the last time you did a staffing study, do you know how to do a staffing study? And I don't say that as a judgment. I don't say that in a, in a way of putting anyone down. You may not have been taught how to do one. Reach out to your human resources. Reach out to that division. Ask them for help. Uh, oftentimes, agencies hire outside consultants to complete those staffing studies for them. So they're completely objective, right? Um, but it's numbers. 
So you should be able to, to do it or someone in human resources should be able to facilitate that for you. How does your salary and benefit package compare to your local region? Here's what I know uh, from my experience is that when we talk about city and county governments, they already have a predetermined list of regional agencies that they compare salaries to. If you don't know what that list is, re again, reach out to Human Resources. They'll be happy to share that. Your payroll, they'll be happy to share that information. Those are the agencies that you want to look and see what they're paid. Are your benefit packages um, comparable to them? When is the last time you did a pay and compensation study? That is something that human resources or payroll also can facilitate. It's an official study where they will compare the pay and compensation for your specific dispatch classifications compared to those pre-identified agencies. So you could find out where you are, right? Are you actually leading the region? Are you somewhere in the middle or are you at the bottom? So we want real numbers that are official numbers. If you are in a union represented shop, I implore you, I encourage you, reach out to the union, become partners and allies with your union to get the staffing study, to get the pay and compensation. Your union really has influence in the pay and compensation study because your agency, I'm sure they're supportive of more pay and more compensation. They don't have the authority to just do it uh, on their own without the cooperation of the union. So make sure you have the union on your side and that you're working in partnership with them. And lastly, this is a question I ask because when I speak to 911 leaders, often we just throw our fishing line in the pond and we hope good candidates come out. But who is your target demographic? Who are you trying to hire? You need to identify who that person is. What's their age group? What's their education level? What's their background? What's their experience? Who are you trying to hire? And be very precise in that. It should, your recruitment should not be, I'm just throwing my fishing line in a pond and I hope something come out, comes out. I need to know which pond. I need to know where the fish are. And I need to know what attracts them to my agency. And this is very important that you do this and that you understand who your target population is, who will make a great 911 responder uh, for your agency and for your region. I hope these tips help. And next up, we'll be interviewing Karima Holmes, formerly 911 director in Washington, DC, and the current vice president of public safety for Carbine. Uh, welcome back. And our guest is Karima Holmes. And Karima, I am not going to do the disservice of introducing you. If you could be so kind as to introduce yourself to the audience for those who may not be familiar with you. Sure, absolutely. Hi, Kim. Um, <laughs> Karima Holmes, I am currently the VP of Public Safety at Carbine, which is a call handling solutions gov tech company um, out of New York City. I am responsible just for literally heading our public safety division. I am the liaison to the industry for Carbon, and then I'm the liaison to Carbon for the industry. 
Um, I come from the 911 industry, spending the last 23 years in PSAPs across the country. My latest stint was about seven years at uh, Washington, D.C.'s 911 Center, which is the Office of Communication, Unified Communications. I did that for seven years and got seven gray hairs out of it. Um, and prior to that, I ran a regional 911 center in southwest Dallas County in Texas and started my career at 19 in Augusta, Georgia as a 911 call taker. I always want to say the home of James Brown. Yep. Yep. <laughs> People all over that. the city. That's awesome. <laughs> and you know, Krima, um, you are a household name in the world of, of 911 and your leadership, your work with FirstNet the things you're doing and have done to usher 911 into the next generation with technology. Um, one of the other things that I, I wanted to kind of talk about, because you have a unique experience um, that we can all learn from in terms of managing critical incidents from a leadership perspective. We often talk about critical incident management from a floor um, or a, a line level, which we should, but I think uh, as leaders, we never really receive sort of like those lessons learned or best practices. So if you wouldn't mind shedding some light on the experience you had um, in Washington in, in January 6th, um, specifically about some points as leaders in managing a critical incident. Oh, sure. Absolutely. So January 6th was probably... If I had to count the dozens of uh, crises that we went through in those seven years I was at D.C., it was definitely in the top three. Mm -hmm. um, and I would have to say that in 911, we're used to, like, busyness, right? So we're used to having all this, like, incidents quiet. Incidents, you know, we kind of mellow it out. But when you get into a crisis, it's almost like a, a, a sock to the face. And you, yeah. you have to kind of be like, oh, wait, I'm in something different. And so I had that a couple, a good little bit of time in my seven years. But um, I think what I found out in all of those incidents and then more like more right during the um, insurrection was there are different pieces of the entire ecosystem. So there's how your people act in a crisis that you need to be aware of, it's how you act in a crisis. It's how your boss acts in a crisis. It's mm. how your technology acts in a crisis. Yeah. And then it's how your stakeholders and your community acts in a crisis. And if you don't understand that, and if one of those fail or you, you cause one of those to bleed more than it needs to bleed, you are in for a disaster. And so... Um, over the years and me correcting things and right-sizing my attitude or the attitudes of those I work with, I did have to learn that there's a little piece of all of them. And depending on where the crisis is, you have to be able to address it. And I'll give you a really, really good example, which is good and bad. So what I figured out with my team, so whenever we would have some high crises, you know, active shooter, some type of cyber incident or something mm -hmm. or a... Or, uh, 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 an incident where we had a lot of work that we had to do, my call takers and dispatchers came in 150%, full-fledged. They would come to work without you having to call them. But what would happen is after the incident, everybody is exhausted. Everybody is short-tempered. Everyone is get every little small thing that happened where that person didn't do. And so 
what I figured out after a couple times of seeing this happen is I had to like um, um, temper some of their mm. workload. And that's hard to do because we're busy yeah. and you want everybody to come to work. But I actually had to say, no, shift A, stay home until your shift is due. We're good. We The phone, yes, we have calls in queue. But guess what? When you come in at 6 p.m., we're going to have calls in queue. You go get your kids to daycare, drink your water, get your lunch, and come to work ready. And that's a very hard thing to do because what we want, everybody come, all hands on deck, let's work. But then night shift, right, they come in and so. I had to learn little things like that. Um, and then the second part of that with um, me, I realized that when incidents happen for me, I do not look at all the planning, all the books, all the strategic stuff that we've done for years for this incident. I'm just going right off. And I realized, why have your people do all that work? You want them to have a cool plan. You want them to... What, what is the disaster? You do all these drills, and then when it happens, you're just like spitting out directives. And so I had to learn later um, that is very important. Pull that book out. Let's go through because it was a lot of things that I didn't do or I forgot we were supposed to do that I was able to do the checklist. So I think that that's really important for you to understand those type of things. That's a great – it made me instantly think um, future product development an app with a leadership checklist that's ah. based on incident type. Yep. That would be yep. fantastic. You can just, we always have our smartphone. Yeah. And I, I checked it off the list. I made that notification. Yeah, yep. I, I, I really appreciate it because I think that um, that last point, especially as a leader, right? Am I communicating properly? Have I remembered to do everything I'm supposed to do? That's wonderful. Yeah. That's wonderful advice. I want to segue just a little bit. And I want to ask about, because you have such a unique position, um, that bridge between technology and where we're going in the 911 space. Can you talk a little bit about where you see that pathway in 911? Like the 911 center of 2024, mm -hmm. what will that look like this year, next year, two years from now, in terms of the technology piece? Sure. So there, there is this um, known thing about Karima. <laughs> I am a doer. I believe that you put more people on the path. You get the group together. We all hold hands. We burn the bonfire. We figure it out, right? But what I have thought about over probably the last three to five years is we are losing some of this, um, I don't want to say it's not reliability, efficiency. We're mm. losing some of this efficiency, not because we can't do it and we're not humans. I think the problem is the type of calls and the complexity of emergencies is totally different than they were 10 years ago, right? People call 911 10 years ago, whether it was a true emergency or not, it was very simple calls that you can get through, right? A, a delivery of a baby, a CPR, or somebody calling to get a case number. That was really easy. Now we have the populace with all of this technology. We have all of these cars that do all of these mm. different things. You have kids that are way more smarter than we were <laughs> that are involved in different things. You have people that are moving across the country and the world on, on trains that go super fast. And We have all of this complexity 
that honestly, a human is not meant to be able to decipher and figure out. We're not, right? We can manage it from the top, but we're not meant to. And it kind of reminds me of, I used, when, I be, when I was a director, I used to look at the call takers and be like, how do you do it? Even though I did it before, I'm old and, and see now now. And I, I do, I look at them and I'm like, how did you get that call that fast and get through that? I'm not made for that, right? I'm, I'm at a different, I, I just don't have it anymore, right? And so I kind of feel like technology, even if, even if you don't go as far as AI, technology is not here to kind of come in and just push us out of the way, right? It's just like supplemental. It, it reminds me of when we started, you know, I started in a 911 center where we were call takers and dispatchers. We did both. You on the phone, you're dispatching, you're doing CPR, and you're dispatching ambulance simultaneously, right? But then we actually got smart about it. It was like, no, we need call takers, handle calls, and we need dispatchers. Could be the same yeah. people, but not at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the same thing that we need to see with technology. It's not that we need the technology to come and take over the people. We need the technology to come and help the people, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that some of the technology that we have out there is absolutely just wonderful. I do worry, and one of my jobs at Carbine is to do this, is to really, again, temper it. We don't need every single gadget in the 911 center. You know, if we have something that comes up and I have my product seems like, look at this bright, shiny thing. And I'm thinking that's that's not a problem in the 911 center. This would be yeah. good if somebody wants it, but this is not something we're going to push through. But if you're solving one of the problems that 911 has or 911 centers have, absolutely. I think um, technology is not as hard to learn as I once thought it was. Um, a lot of it is mm. automated. And I also think that what technology can help in 911 Center with the most is things that we do all the time. This is a very simple example, <clears throat> but it's kind of like, you know, Kim, back in the day, we answered 911 by just looking at the phone and picking what line we want to answer, and we yeah. answered it, right? Which mm-hmm. was okay, but those of us that didn't want to answer the green for EMS, I didn't like EMS calls, I'd rather take police calls. We picked because we're human, right? Yeah. But then we had this thing called ACD. And guess what? You're going to get the call because you're the next person to get a call. It doesn't matter what the call is, right? Just technology. It didn't change. Yeah. I still had to handle the call, but it just handled the way and it was more proficient. So that's kind of how I feel about technology and what the, what the 2024 piece that would be. I do think that it would be a buddy to us. Um, mm-hmm. I, do, I do think the adoption is going to be a little faster than we've seen in the last couple of years because people are really getting more comfortable with technology just as a whole coming into 911. We've been, 911 has been very closed door, right? We've been, you know, we are not little centers. We don't kind of let folks in, but I do think we have some really strong vendors out here that are partnering with PSAPs, which is the smart way to go because, you know, 10, five, 10 years ago, we had vendors that were just coming in, pushing stuff down our throat. And I think it's the other way. We're getting better at that. On the business side of things, are actually going in and, and finding those pain points and helping me meet there. So technology is great, but I do think we can get a little overboard. So long as we're tempering it and matching our energies for what we need. I really like that perspective, right? Um, especially with the AI conversation, because it is a real and relevant conversation, how we will integrate it. But the idea of partnering with our vendors 
to actually create and provide the products that we really need to help solve the problem. I love, love that. But it, it kind of makes me want to ask this question, Karima, um, because, as you know, recruitment and retention is a huge issue in 911 centers across the country. And one of the things that I always talk about and really teach is, do you actually know your demographic of whom you're trying to recruit? And I don't know if many of us are, are asking that question. When you talk about technology, um, I, I would I would feel comfortable saying that most directors or managers would say the demographic I want is someone who's strong in customer service. But but I think that there's a space here to make the argument that customer service can be taught. And maybe the demographic is someone who's not adverse to technology, who's a right. quick adopter of, a te- of technology. What What are your thoughts on that? Sure. So, no, I completely agree. And I'll tell you a quick story. I visited one of our customers and um, I was on the floor talking to a couple of the call takers. And so I stopped and it was the guy, he was sitting there and um, he had Minecraft up. So he was doing his 911 work or whatever. He had Minecraft up and every so often he would go to Minecraft and then when the phone rang, you know, he would take calls. So later when I was talking to the manager, we were um, off, um, off in a meeting room and we were talking she was explaining to me that that guy had to be the most like efficient call taker she had with technology. They have our technology, so they have a lot of the next gen nine one one features. And she's, you know, and this is just her. She doesn't know. She goes, and I think it's because he's a gamer. I, she said, I think it's because he's a gamer, and it's natural to him to be yeah. able to kind of place these things. But no, I agree. I think we have to do better and who we're bringing in. One thing I will say, you know, I'm Generation X, so I'm like the olden team, right? But I did come up, we came up on technology. We probably was the first group that really started with the Blackberry yeah. cell phones and things like that. So we have, a, we're technologically more savvy than our parents were. So mm-hmm. the good thing about that is just about every generation that's in the workforce is pretty accustomed to technology. So it's actually helping us versus if we were trying to hire people in the 80s where you had my mother who was still in the workforce mm. and, then, you know, my older brother coming in. They were as technologically savvy as the rest of us. So bringing technology to that group probably was a little harder. And, and we saw that with the different um, cell phones where they had to make cell phones specific to older people. Um, you don't have that now, right? You have cell phones yeah. now that older people can have too. So I do think that it actually helped us because most of the pool of those that are in the job market, they're pretty um, conscious of it. But I do think what we have to do as leaders is we have to change the way we're training the people when they come in. Mm. I am almost sure most of my 911 centers, and I don't want to speak for the directors there now, we are still training people. Uh, we trained them when I was there with the same training manual, with the same, you know, manual ways of taking calls. I mean, critical came in. It was probably like mind blowing, but we're probably still using that same type. And I think it's time now for us to really pull out those training books, clean them up and see, like, what are we teaching folks? Right. Because they're getting again, they're getting those complex calls that we wouldn't get, you know, you're getting people that are calling with someone on the other end that is in another state. 
Mm-hmm. You know, people are calling. And so I think that we probably can do better with training now. We probably need to switch that over a little bit. I'd agree a thousand percent. The, the job we're teaching is not the job we learned. Right. And um, I love the idea of really leveraging technology to make us yes. better and more efficient and to help with that retention issue. Absolutely. Is there, I always have a, a concluding question that may be odd, right? Okay. But here you go. If you were a call type or a type code to describe you, what would it be? I would probably, oof, let's see. I would, right now in my life, I would be a 10-8. And a 10-8 is clear. I, love I it. would probably say in my career, in my life, this is the clearest my mind has been. This is the clearest my goals have been. Um, the clearest my budgeting has been. I'm a spendaholic. Um, I've gotten much, much better. If you would have asked me this question two years ago, I would have said a signal 16, which is a mental health patient that needs help. <laughs> <laughs> because I felt I was all over the place, but I think we all were around COVID, the yeah. insurrection and all of yeah. that. Uh, but no, I would have to say that 10-8, which is clear, I feel pretty clear right now in my career and my life. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for all you're doing on the public or in the private sector for 911. And you're still a champion for 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 everyone, all 911. And thank you so much, Karima. I appreciate you taking the time to be with me, be here with me today. Absolutely. Thank you, Kim. You're welcome. Have a wonderful uh, afternoon. You too. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for episode number two with our guest, Karima Holmes of Carbine. And uh, public disclosure, I'm also on the Public Safety Advisory Board for Carbine um, in an effort to help usher in really wonderful technology for our 911 first responders. So if you're in the market for a call handling solution, make sure to schedule a demo with carbine.com. I think you'll be very pleased with uh, the product and the things it could do for you in your comm center. With that, I'd like to just thank you. Thank you, my 911 first responders. Thank you for answering the call. Thank you for the overtime that you're working to keep everyone safe, your community safe. And hopefully we could get that recruitment up, the retention, so we're no longer in a a staffing shortage. Be sure to visit thekimturner.com. We absolutely can help you with uh, those recruitment efforts and also training. I look forward to seeing you in the next podcast or seeing you in class. Stay safe and stay well.